0: We are in uh, Mark's gospel, of course. We have made our way to the 14th chapter and we'll be concluding uh, this 14th chapter this morning, Mark 14, beginning in verse 53. And one of the recurring words that we will see here is the word witness or the word testify or testimony. When we use the word witness in church, we normally think of our responsibility in sharing the gospel with other people. We know that that is a biblical command. We know that the the Great Commission compels us to, as we go, be sharing the gospel so that people can hear and respond. And while we know it's a biblical command given not just there but in many places, the fact of the matter is studies consistently show that very few or the vast majority of people do not share their faith. That is, very few actually do it. The vast majority do not. Many have never, ever tried to have a gospel conversation with someone else. And so when we bring up the word in church, reminding us of our mandate, we feel guilty, but usually not guilty enough to actually change our habits. But that's the way we use the word in church. Outside of church, that is in society, We use the word witness in a different way. There the word is used to speak of someone who is called to testify in a trial. That is, they have seen something or know something, and therefore they are called to testify about what they have seen or heard. They are a witness to a crime, and under an oath of truthfulness, they are to share what they know. And an eyewitness testimony is a powerful key. It's powerful evidence toward a verdict, as long, of course, as that testimony matches what others say and the other evidence. Now, sadly, we are well aware of the fact that sometimes such testimony is fabricated. There are many reasons for this. Sometimes it is a money issue. That is, someone is paid to tell a story that is not true. Sometimes it's about a more lenient sentence for themselves. That is, they were partners in the crime, but if they tell what they know, whether it's true or not, they might get a lesser sentence. Sometimes it is pure vengeance or retaliation. Hating someone so much that you'll say anything to get them convicted, whether there is evidence there or not. We've certainly had instances where evidence is planted to secure a verdict. So there are many ways in which our judicial system is corrupt resulting occasionally in someone being convicted for a crime that they, in fact, did not commit. Now, we are going to see all of these factors in the section of Scripture we are looking at this morning. Last week, we were in the garden, and there in the garden, we heard Jesus three times sorrowfully pray to His Father, asking if there might be some way. That he could save us in a different manner. Some way that the cup of God's wrath would not be poured down upon him. But then we heard him say, nevertheless, not my will but yours. And he submitted himself to the will of God for our salvation. That was, of course, followed by the betrayal and arrest. Judas arrives with some Roman soldiers, no doubt some temple police with him as well. All of this taking place in the pre-dawn hours of Friday morning. We know that they had celebrated the Passover the night before. That supper would have been from sundown on Thursday until midnight on that Thursday. And now we are some hours past that. It is still not dawn, so we are somewhere between midnight and the beginning of dawn on Friday morning. So what happens after an arrest? Well, in our system, there is much legal wrangling. There are hearings before judges, there are delays and more delays. All of this while the accused is either out on bond or held until trial. And that of course depends on the seriousness of the crime and what kind of flight risk the person might be. But eventually in our system, there is a trial before a jury of your peers. It might be months, even years down the road. But unless there is a settlement, there is going to be a trial And you are going to decide, uh, the jury is going to decide whether you are guilty or not. Now, needless to say, the Jewish legal system was slightly different than our own. There was no holding the accused for months or years. The trial took place almost immediately. In Jesus' case, they lead him immediately to the high priest for his Jewish portion of the trial. We'll look at the Roman portion of the trial next week. That's going to follow as Thursday gives way to Friday, as night gives way to morning. But we are in the Jewish trial here in this section of Scripture. And in the midst of this Jewish portion of the trial, we are going to hear several witnesses. There are actually many people called upon to testify or witness whose names we don't know, neither do we know how many they were. But we do know that there were two witnesses in this particular setting, One is going to be the confession of Christ, and the second is going to be the denial of Peter. That is a witness, even though it is a negative witness, and that word witness occurs some seven times in the space of nine verses, though, of course, your translation, depending on what you have, may translate it with a different word like testimony. And we are once again going to see the sandwich technique by Mark. Used here to contrast these two witnesses, the confession of Christ and the denial of Peter, how different they are. But it's also used to show us that these two events are occurring simultaneously. They are going on at the exact same time, one upstairs and the other downstairs. So look with me at Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 53, Mark 14, 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. That's where you get the sandwich technique. We learn where Peter is, but we don't go back to his story until verse 66. But it's planted there to show us that he's there and these things are happening together. Verse 55, now the chief priests and the whole council, were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, for their testimony did not agree. And someone stood up and bore bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Two witnesses. The first witness is Christ himself and his confession. The confession that he is the Christ. Jesus is taken to the high priest in this pre-dawn trial. The high priest is a man by the name of Joseph Caiaphas. He was in power in this position from A.D. 18 until the year 36. He took over this position from his father-in-law, Annas. Annas was forced out by the Roman authorities, and yet, even at this time, though he was not the high priest, he wielded great and enormous power. In fact, John's gospel tells us that they actually took Jesus to Annas first. Caiaphas was evidently a very good administrator because at a time when the average position was four years, Caiaphas was the high priest for 19 years. The Sanhedrin, as we've already seen in weeks past, was made up of the three categories of people that you see listed there in verse 53. There was 70 of them. The high priest presided over the Sanhedrin, making the total membership of 71 They had freedom of jurisdiction in religious matters. Even in in political matters, they had partial freedom, but they did not possess the power of capital punishment. They did not have the authority to put anybody to death, which is why we're going to see that after this trial, Jesus is taken to the Roman officials. So a trial was hastily put together at the home of the high priest, in one of the upper rooms that overlooked the courtyard below. The whole council was there, a phrase that does not necessarily mean that all 71 members was present. We still use phrases like that. We say everyone was there when we know everyone was literally not there. We're just saying it that way to say that there was a large crowd there. So we do not know if all 71 members were there, but we know that a large number of them were. It took 23 to make a quorum in a death penalty case. Now, it is hard to calculate just how many violations of the rules or the laws that we find here in this rush to judgment. Nearly every single detail of this story is some breach of the rules. There is no record that trials ever took place in the home of the high priest. There was another building for that. But here we find this trial taking place at his home. In a capital punishment case, when a guilty verdict was rendered, it was required that a second trial take place on the next day. A second Jewish trial. I'm not talking about the Roman trial. And there was no second trial for Jesus before the Jewish authorities. Both of these trials, the first and the second Jewish trials, were supposed to be during the daytime. They were not supposed to be convened under the cover of darkness. But they were trying to hurry Jesus along. They wanted to get Him to Pilate on Friday morning. Otherwise, all of this would drag on past the Sabbath and potentially raise the possibility of mob uprising. Now it's odd for us to say drag on past the Sabbath, because this is early Friday morning and the Sabbath is Friday night through Saturday night. So that's not dragging on, even if it goes to Sunday. After all, we're in a system where trials do drag on for months, if not years. But these men are not interested in Jesus receiving a fair trial. They are not interested in the facts of the case they are interested in one thing and one thing only, and that is convicting Jesus of something that is worthy of death and getting him out of their way. So, this is clearly a trial where Jesus is guilty before he is declared uh, or guilty until proven innocent rather than the other way around. So, all of this is the setting for the confession of Christ. But what evidence do they have? What evidence do they have that Jesus is guilty of some sort of charge that is worthy of death? Well, for starters, they don't have much, and they know it. That is why they summon people to give false testimony. They ask people to bear false witness in order to convict Jesus, fabricating evidence against Him. A serious case like this, according to the book of Deuteronomy, required two or three witnesses, and those witnesses had to agree. Even if in minor details they did not agree, the evidence was inadmissible in court because it was contradicting one another. So while they get many people to testify against him, none of it was consistent, and therefore none of it was going to stick. The only specific charge that we are told here is about a statement that Jesus made about destroying the temple and rebuilding it in three days. Now, Mark, in his gospel, does not record this statement from Jesus. We have heard Jesus say the temple is going to be destroyed, but that's a prophecy that God is going to destroy the temple because of the faithlessness and fruitlessness of the Israelites. And in fact, we saw a dramatic portrayal of that as Jesus entered into Jerusalem in this last week of his life in the cursing of the fig tree. That was a portrait of what was going to happen to the temple. But that's not what they're claiming here. They are claiming Jesus himself said, I will destroy the temple, and then I will build it back in three days. To get this statement, we must go to John's gospel. At the very beginning of his gospel, in chapter 2, Some of the religious leaders come to Jesus, and they asked for a sign. And in response to their request for a sign, Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews responded by saying, how is this possible? The temple had been under construction for 46 years, and it was not yet complete during Jesus' lifetime." And so they say incredulously, how could you possibly say that you could rebuild this that has taken so long to build and you can do it in only three days? But if you go to John's gospel, you will find that John gives us an editorial note. John says that Jesus was talking about his body, not the literal temple. Now, I'm sure you've had the experience of someone taking something you had said that you did not mean to be taking literally, and they take it literally. And because they take something you meant as a figure of speech, they take it literally, it is totally not what you said. The words are what you said, but the meaning behind them are not. Or we could at least acknowledge that there are some times when people take something we say out of context. Again, we might have said the exact words, but we certainly didn't mean them. And in the context, they didn't mean what the person is now claiming we said or did not say. So there is some truth to this charge. Jesus did make that statement, but this is certainly not completely factual in the way that they are using it. Jesus will, in fact, replace the temple. We will meet with God through the person of Christ rather than an earthly building. But they certainly didn't understand the statement in those terms. Now, keep in mind, this was indeed a very serious charge. The temple was the center of Jewish worship and the seat of power for the very Sanhedrin Whom Jesus is before. These men loved the temple because it was their place of worship and their place of power. The temple symbolized the essence of Israel and the very hopes of Judaism moving forward. That is why they could not fathom that it would ever be destroyed, especially not from God. And yet, that is exactly what Jesus said would happen. So, the destruction or even the desecration of the temple was a capital offense. And yet, even here, their testimony does not agree. So this hasty trial is getting nowhere until Caiaphas decides to take matter into his own hands and interrogate Jesus directly. He is baffled that Jesus will not speak up for himself. It was required by law that you would answer the charges, but Jesus is remaining silent. And this is frustrating to Caiaphas, not only because it was illegal But because everyone else stood up for themselves in trial. I mean, especially if you're innocent, you are going to loudly and completely say that you did not do whatever it is they're claiming you are doing. But Jesus remains silent. Caiaphas has no idea that even this was a fulfillment of Scripture. Isaiah's servant song in Isaiah 52 and 53 in part says of the suffering servant, he was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This is a fulfillment of that very prophecy. So Caiaphas asks a second question. Caiaphas says very directly to Jesus, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Now, the son of the blessed is just another name for God. You know that the Jews were leery of using the name of God for fear that they might blaspheme. And so they didn't use the God's name. So they had substitutes for it, and this is one of them. We have been so accustomed to Jesus silencing such claims throughout the gospel story over and over again in this gospel of Mark. We've heard Jesus say, don't tell. Don't say anything about who I am. After Peter's great confession way back in Galilee, Jesus says, Do not tell people this. Don't tell them what you've seen. Don't tell them who I am. And yet now all of that changes. The messianic secret is now over with. And boldly and clearly, Jesus makes the confession. He is indeed both the Messiah and the Son of God. Now his claim to be Messiah would not have been what got them worked up. That was not what made them angry. There were others who came before Jesus who claimed to be the Messiah. There will be others after Jesus, history tells us, that would also claim to be the Messiah. The Jews expected a human Messiah, not a divine one. So that part of the claim is not what gets them upset. But to claim to be the Son of God and to sit at the right hand in power and to come with Him on clouds in heaven... That is what has them riled up. And to this question, Jesus gives the revered name of God and applies it to himself. I am. And then he talks about the seed in in heaven and the coming on the clouds, which is a combination of verses from Daniel and Psalms. And all of this was more than the Jews could handle, especially the high priest, who now tears his garment as a sign of grief, As a sign of an alarm uh, to such a claim, the verdict is now surely rendered. Leviticus chapter 24 says, Whoever blasphemes in the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. Jesus' fate is now sealed before the Jewish leaders. There is no further need of testimony, whether it's true or fabricated. His own confession is now more than enough for a charge of blasphemy. Blasphemy, blasphemy meaning dishonoring God by diminishing His majesty. And as there are no courts of appeals in the Jewish legal system, this verdict is now made in their minds. The punishment, according to the Old Testament, was death by stoning. And here is another deviation from the rules, because we know that Jesus is going to be crucified, not stoned. But again, these men don't really care what the method is. They are only concerned with the outcome. And thus they begin spitting and mocking and striking Jesus, all of which were conventional gestures of rejection and repudiation. Jesus has been dishonored by the high priest, but he is going to be honored by God. Jesus has been judged guilty by a Jewish court, but he says to them that he's coming back someday, and when he does come back, they will stand before his court, and he will declare that they are the ones who are guilty. Mockingly, they cover his eyes and urge him to prophesy. Who is it that is striking you? Having no idea that at the very moment they are urging him to prophesy, one of his prophecies is coming to pass just downstairs from where they are. That's what we're going to see in just a moment. Now, we will see more of all of this next week. More unjust trials, this time before the Roman officials. More physical shame and suffering. But before we move to our second witness this morning, one that is extremely different from this one, I want to, conclu- to consider again this confession of Christ. He claims to be both the Messiah and the Son of God. There is no mistaking what he is saying here. He is taking the Old Testament name of God, the great I Am, and he is applying it to himself. Those who say that Jesus never claimed to be God that it was merely a title foisted upon him by overzealous disciples later on, simply are not reading the same Bible that we have before us. This confession of Christ that he is the Messiah and that he is the Son of God leaves us with a decision to make. And there are only three options for this decision. C.S. Lewis famously said, that Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. Those are your three options. Either he was not God and he knew it, he was simply lying and therefore he is a liar, or he thought he was God but he's not, therefore he was crazy, he's a lunatic. Or the third option is that he knew he was God and he is God and therefore he is Lord. Those are your only three choices. And so with this confession deemed to be blasphemy by Caiaphas and the other members of the Sanhedrin, Jesus is rendered guilty, deserving of death. Now the question for you is you're going to have to decide, is this blasphemy or is it truth? If it's truth, then he is Lord. Well, let's move to our second witness. From the confession of Christ, we move to discover the denial of Peter. Now remember, Peter has already confessed that he is ready to die rather than deny Christ. We saw that last week when Jesus predicted that they would all fall away. Peter spoke on behalf of the group and he said, they might. I can understand that, but I never will. Even if I have to die, I will not deny you. And all the other disciples said the same thing. At first, it appears that we need to give Peter some credit. At least he followed. At a distance, sure, but he appears to be the only one who is following. He is warming himself by a fire with some servants, trying his best to stay out of the spotlight. And again, the inclusion of this story in verse 54 of Peter being there, and then verse 66, as Peter was below, tells us that these things are happening simultaneously. Jesus is on trial up in the upper levels of Caiaphas' house, And they can look down below into the courtyard where there is Peter warming himself by the fire, trying to stay out of everyone's way. But usually when we want to stay hidden is when we're bothered by someone. The very moment that someone spots us and comes up to us, and sure enough, a servant girl somehow recognized Peter. We don't know exactly, but perhaps she was at some place where Jesus was ministering and had seen Peter with Jesus, and so now she remembers that, and she goes to Peter and says, you are one of them. You have been with the Nazarene, and that is not a statement of geography. She is not simply saying where Jesus is from. That is a statement of disdain, not a recognition of his hometown. So Peter now becomes the center of attention. And as a result of this servant girl's claim, we get Peter's first of his three denials, all of which, of course, have been predicted by Jesus. There are two words here used to describe his response. One speaks of a theoretical knowledge, while the other is a more practical knowledge. The combination of the two tells us that this is a total and complete denial by Peter. He says, not, not only do I not know the man, I do not know what you are talking about. And so Peter tries to remove himself from all of this, finding a different location where perhaps he can be left alone, only to hear ominously, no doubt, the first crow of the rooster. But this does not make any impact upon him, at least not yet. The change in place has not been accompanied by a change of heart. But the servant girl is not finished with her interrogation. This time she involves others in the process. Again, we don't know how many. They're simply called bystanders, but she turns to the bystanders and says, surely this is one of his, leading to his second denial. And then the third uh, occasion, the third accusation followed by the denial is actually by the bystanders themselves, adding that he is clearly a Galilean just like Jesus. His accent has betrayed him. There is no doubt where Peter is from. And we know something about accents, don't we? I mean, it doesn't matter where we travel in the world, people know that we are from the southern United States. They may not be able to pinpoint that we're from Tennessee, but I'm sure they can tell you that you're from somewhere in the south because the way we talk gives away where we're from. We can't deny it. I was with some friends last week, and one of those friends owns a a business, and he's doing some business, has been doing some business with a man from London. He had never met the man, but the man was coming over from London for uh, for some business, and he was coming into his factory there in North Georgia. And as he was coming in, he was talking to one of this man's employees. And again, this man had never met the man from London, but as he's coming in and he hears him talk, the first thing he says to this man from London is, you ain't from around here, are you? And the man from London answered by saying, We're not the ones destroying the king's English. You are. We speak differently because of where we're from. Likewise, these folks know that Peter is a Galilean because his voice gives him away. And this leads to his third denial. And there is an acceleration here. There is an escalation of these responses In fact, the verb tense in this last response tells us that Peter kept on denying. This was not a one-sentence denial as we find it in our text. This was a continuous and ongoing denial. I don't know him. I'm telling you I don't know him. Leave me alone. I don't know who this man is. And this time he follows it up with swearing and cursing. Now for us, that normally means we're using words that we shouldn't use those four-letter words that we try not to use and teach our children not to use likewise. But that is not what that means here. Peter is swearing a curse on himself and likely a curse on the bystanders as well. He is calling down a a curse upon himself if he is indeed lying. Something like saying, if I'm lying, may God strike me dead and calling a curse upon the bystanders if they keep falsely accusing him of being someone that he's not. Now, did you notice that Peter doesn't use the name of Jesus? In the last denial, he says, I do not know this man. Peter, the chief apostle, the spokesman for the group, the leader among leaders, who just a few hours ago had boldly said, I don't know what the rest of them are going to do, but I'm telling you, Jesus, I will not deny you. I will die before I do that. This same Peter now can't even muster the name of Jesus upon his lips. I think it's one of the reasons we like Peter so much, because we can identify with him, pledging our faith and love to Jesus with all sincerity, Remember, we said last week that 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 was a sincere pledge, pledging our faith and love to Jesus in one moment, and a short time later acting as if we don't even know who he is. We are so fickle. Our faith rises and falls from day to day, sometimes even hour to hour. And then the second rooster crows, the second, uh, well, you know what I'm talking about, the second time it happens. And Peter is reminded of the words of Jesus, not that he'd ever forgotten them. Luke tells us that it was at this very moment that Jesus looked down at him. Remember, the trial is taking place upstairs in one of the rooms of Caiaphas's house where there had been an opening and you could look down into the courtyard or atrium below. So Luke tells us it was at this very moment where the rooster crows the second time that Jesus looks down at Peter And the combination of seeing the face of Jesus and remembering the words of his prediction are too much. Peter breaks down and weeps at what he has done. The passionate pledge of death rather than denial has not been enough to keep Peter faithful. Falling asleep in the garden three times rather than praying for his own spiritual strength as he faces temptation has now resulted in Peter denying Jesus three times. I want to remind you of what we talked about in the very first week of this study, that Mark is writing to Christians who are in Rome. And if you know anything about your history, you know that shortly after this are the great persecutions under Nero in Rome. The Christians who are in Rome needed some encouragement. They needed to hear these stories to ascertain for themselves whether when they face persecution they will stand and confess Christ or whether they will deny like Peter has denied. When the fires of persecution arise in Rome, which one are they going to do? Are they going to boldly confess their faith in Christ or cowardly deny him? Well, I also want to remind you that Mark is not just writing to those first century Christians. By the Holy Spirit, he's writing to us as well, which means we should see in these two witnesses a model for our own lives. No now we tend to think that that means, well, if I ever come to the place where I'm put before a trial or, or I have to decide whether to boldly confess or deny for the sake of persecution and death, then I know what I'm going to choose. But the fact of the matter is most of us are never going to be in that situation. Because of the country we live in, we are not likely to be facing death if we, unless we deny Christ. But that does not mean that this does not apply to us. In simple and ordinary actions and words, we take our stand daily. And if the chief apostle is not immune from making the wrong choice, we certainly aren't either. The question is, when we go to work tomorrow, are we going to confess Christ or deny Him by how we live? As we go to school tomorrow, are we confessing Christ with our lives and lips, or are we denying Him by those same standards? We should at least acknowledge this. For all of the bad publicity that Peter gets, his sin grieved him, and he wept. I wonder, when was the last time we've wept over our sin? When was the last time that our failures for our relationship with Christ have grieved us to the point where we've cried over it? Many of us will have to go back a very long time to find such a moment, if we can find one at all. Because nowadays we take sin so casually. Don't worry, God will forgive you, and He will. That's not the point. But sin ought to grieve us. When we fail our Lord, it ought to bother us. We are not usually comfortable with our own tears, much less anyone else's. When it's our own tears, we try to shed them in private. We don't want others to see us cry. We don't want even others to know that we have cried. So after we cry, we make sure that our eyes don't look like it before we go back out in public. And we're certainly not comfortable with the tears of others. When we have others who are crying around us, we want to comfort them and help to dry their eyes. Likewise, I'm not comfortable this morning ending this sermon with Peter in tears. It just doesn't make for a good conclusion. Even though the last statement in our verses is, he broke down and wept. I cannot stop there. Now, I would if Mark had taken the time to write in the next two chapters at some point about what happened to Peter later. And you would think that he would have. I mean, remember, Peter is Mark's eyewitness testimony for much of what he writes about in the gospel. And don't you think Peter would have said to Mark, buddy, you have got to include what happened to me on the shores of the lake in Galilee When Jesus restored me to ministry, don't leave that out. But Mark does. And so to go forward in the story, we have to go to John's gospel. John's the only one that tells that story. Now, Mark has already told us that Jesus said to them, I am going to be reunited with you in Galilee. So in John's gospel, we are back in Galilee after the resurrection And there we find Peter and a few of the disciples. We don't know how many, and we don't even know exactly which ones, but we do know that Peter and John are there. And Peter says, I think I'll go fishing. And some of the other disciples say, we'll go with you. Back to their old way of life, back to what they used to do for a living. And so they fish all night. That's the way commercial fishermen did it in those days. They fished all night. And so in this particular scene, we are at the break of dawn. The sun is just beginning to rise, and they're coming into shore after a, after a fruitless night of fishing. And there they see somebody on the beach. They're not sure who it is, but they know someone is there, and that someone who obviously we know to be Jesus calls out to them and says, children, have you caught any fish? And they say no. And Jesus, reminiscent of what he had done before, said to them, cast the net out on the other side of the boat, and for whatever reason they do. And the haul of fish is so great that they have trouble bringing it in to the boat. And it's at that moment that John, the beloved disciple, as he calls himself in his own gospel, turns to Peter and says, Peter, it is the Lord. And Peter puts on his outer garment he had taken it off in order to work and so he puts on his outer garment and doesn't even wait for the ship to get to shore he dives into the water and swims to shore so that he can see Jesus and when the other disciples arrive from the ship they have breakfast with Jesus and then Jesus turns to Peter and he says Peter do you love me Peter says you know I do feed my sheep A second time, he asked the same question, Peter, do you love me? And again, the same response. The wording might be just a little bit different, but in all actuality, it's the same question and the same response. Three times, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. The three questions reminiscent of the three denials. And each time after Peter answers, Jesus says, feed my sheep or tend my flock. Jesus is reinstating Peter to fellowship with himself. He is reuniting him with himself, reinstating him for faithfulness in ministry. His ministry is not over because of one failure, as big as that failure was. His relationship with Jesus has not finished just because his faith has faltered. This is the grace of God in action. No sin is greater than God's grace. There is no sin that Peter and no sin that you can commit that puts you outside the realms of the grace of God. Which is why in Romans, Paul said, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And that includes whatever sins and failures you've had in your life. Grace greater than all our sins. It doesn't end with Peter weeping. It ends with Peter reunited with Jesus, reestablished for ministry, and faithfully serving him the rest of his life until he indeed does die for his faith in Jesus. Let's pray.